0: Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, Launch your own label or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. And today I'm chatting with Alex of the Sleep Shirt. She got her start way back in the early 2000s working in fashion as an employee for various brands and doing some freelance work, and ultimately wound up launching the Sleep Shirt in 2012. In the eight years since The Sleep Shirt has been around, we recorded this in 2020, I know you're hearing it in 2021, but uh, in the eight, nine-ish years that The Sleep Shirt has been around, they have grown from being carried at various wholesalers, including Barney's, to focusing more on direct-to-consumer sales. And is gonna share all about how they grew that channel and grew their website using a few specific str- strategies PR and getting press coverage. She's also going to share the story of how one press, piece of press coverage blew up the business and really allowed them to focus on what type of press they needed going forward. She's also been using Facebook ads to grow. She talks a lot about the strategies behind that and why or, why it may or may not be a good choice for your brand, as well as growing her email list and having direct contact to her customers. She shares all great insights and is very transparent on the experience that she has had while building and growing the sleep shirt. And I know you guys are going to love her story and everything that she has to share. You're going to be able to apply a ton of this to your own fashion brands as always thank you so much for listening before we get into the interview two quick things one if you have already left a review on apple Podcasts, we appreciate that so much thank you if you haven't go ahead and take 30 seconds if you think we deserve one and leave us a five-star rating and do a quick little write-up those reviews and ratings go so far and we really appreciate your support second to that if you do not already follow me on instagram i am pretty active over there at so heidi s-e-w-h-e-i-d-i and i would love to connect with you there i share tons of stuff that you don't see or hear about on the podcast so definitely go over there and let's say hi all right beyond that if you want to access the show notes for this specific episode just scroll down wherever you're listening and now let's jump into the interview with alex welcome alexandra to the successful fashion designer podcast can you please start out by telling everyone who you are and what you do in the fashion industry Hi. Uh, my name is Alexandra
1: Sooner-Eisenberg. I am an entrepreneur. I trained originally as a fashion designer in Paris and London, and I've worked with some luxury brands, and I now run my own luxury sleepwear and loungewear brand called The Sleep Shirt.
0: Okay. That was so concise, but I know the timeline is a lot longer, and there's a lot more that's gone on <laughs> in that <laughs> sentence. Um Give us a little bit of background. You said you trained in Paris and London. And what was the beginning of your, your career like? Um, I always wanted to be in fashion.
1: When I was a kid, I have, like, fashion illustrations from when I was, like, eight years old. Oh. Um so, when I graduated high school, I did a. I'm from Vancouver, BC, Canada. Um, uh, after graduating, I did a one year diploma course in fashion in Vancouver. And then I got accepted to a fashion school in Paris called uh, Les Ecoles de la Chambre Syndicale. Um, and it's the famous Haute Couture school in Paris where. Um, tons of very famous designers have studied, like Valentino and I think Lagerfeld went there as well. Uh, and that's where I learned sort of really intense like, haute couture techniques. And I got an internship at Sonia Rykiel, which at the time was a very well-known luxury knitwear brand in Paris. Uh, and I, that turned into a job. So I worked there for a while and then I decided I wanted to go back to school. So I got accepted onto the MA in fashion design at central St. Martin's college of art and design in London. And so I moved to London, uh, and I did my MA there. Okay. And where are we at in the timeline? What, where, what year is this roughly? Uh, I think I graduated from St. Martin's in 2002 Okay, and then I worked for a little while at Burberry and well, I worked for Burberry on a outerwear project and then I was working in London freelancing. I had a lingerie company for several years which sold in uh, luxury department stores and um, Uh, it was called state of undress. And then in around 2009, I moved back to Canada. Um, and there I started a blog and I was working in the media and I was teaching fashion design and fashion marketing. And it was in 2012 that I started the sleep shirt, which is the company that I'm running now.
0: Okay. Wow. You've done a lot. I didn't know you also had a lingerie brand squeezed in there. Yeah, there's not a lot about it online because it
1: was kind of before
0: (laughs) the internet. (laughs) Before the internet, but I mean, almost.
1: So, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so there's not much record of it online, which is kind of strange.
0: Okay. It sounds like you've always had sort of a million things going on. Yep. You have. Definitely. It's just how you thrive. Uh,. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I guess so. And I, I mean, I think right now is probably when I've got the least amount of things going on because I'm mostly focused on the sleep shirt, but yeah, okay. I've always found myself with a lot of things going on. Um, so I think it's nice to kind of be really focused now on okay. one, one main project.
0: Okay. And sorry, when did you say you started sleep shirt? 2000? 2012. 12. Okay. So it's been a good eight years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the the start of that brand. Um, you know what inspired you to do that, and and how did you really kick things off initially?
1: So I hadn't intended on starting another fashion company, but um, I was living in Vancouver. This is after I'd moved back to Vancouver, and I went to London for Fashion Week, and I was in Spitalfields Fields Market, which is like a vintage market in London. And I found this old sort of 19th century men's chemise. And I thought, oh, this would be quite nice to sleep in. So I bought it, took it home, washed it, started sleeping in it. And I was like, I really like this and maybe I should make some. And one of the things that I liked about it, it was just a really big oversized shirt. And after having worked in lingerie, I was really keen on doing something that was one size only uh. because uh, lingerie is just insanity, particularly with bras when it comes to sizing. It's really a nightmare. Um, so so I had this shirt, I I tweaked the design of the shirt to make it a little bit more contemporary and I had it made in a blue and white striped cotton in two lengths and that is how the company began. And in at the time I was I had just had my first child. I was You know, it was, it started off as a jobby, you know, a job hobby that wasn't really, (laughs) wasn't really super serious. Like I was selling a couple and we had a small online store and, um, I had someone helping me out at the time, but in 2014, we got the opportunity to, um, start working with a really well-established wholesale agent out of London. And that's when, and part of the deal with working with them was that we had to grow the collection a little bit. And, you know, and, and, and we, so we, we added some more shapes and we signed with this wholesale agency. And that's when the business really started to take off. That's when we started to get the larger retailers and and the business went from being a jobby to
0: an established Company. And so the wholesale agency, correct me if I'm wrong, is this they help get your product placed in retail outlets?
1: Correct, yeah. So we would send them our collection and our assets, like photo shoots and catalog or line sheets and everything, and they would show the collection in London, Paris, and New York and meet with buyers okay. um, and show them the collection and sell them and sell the collection to them. So that's how we got into, for example, Le Bon Marché in Paris, which is an amazing department store in Paris, and we've been with them ever since. Okay. So, you know, we yeah, that's that was our real sort of entrance into the – the wholesale world.
0: So it's almost like a t- um, an established team of sales reps and like a showroom type of thing. I've never heard it yeah. called as a, uh, referred to as a wholesale agency before.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly what it is. So, okay. I mean, they had a huge showroom in London and so it was like, you know, what a showroom looks like, rails, collections, yep. a little section for each brand. And then they would, and they had a smaller space in New York. And then for Paris, they would, uh, be into dif- like, they would rent spaces, but they would move everything over there. And, and yeah, it was, it's just like a big kind of showroom. Okay. Um,
0: yeah. Okay, so before we, like, keep going with all this, and I'm super excited to hear about how all this happened, I want to, like, go back to the very beginning and literally talk about how it happened because you so casually say, you know, so I had two styles made and a, a white one and a blue and white striped one and two different lengths, and then we just started selling them online. Um, we all know it's not quite that simple. So <laughs> talk, like, like, for a listener out there who, you know, Maybe they have some experience in fashion professionally working, you know, as an employee or doing freelance or what have you, but they want to start their own thing. Um, You know, talk us really through some of the steps and the processes that you took to, to kickstart this. So I had a contact in Mexico. So I first had a small
1: production run made in Mexico. So I sent her um, a sample and a pattern, and uh, she had a small manufacturing unit, and uh, they made a they made a really like a we did a small production run, but that uh, didn't really work out. So I ended up trying to find a manufacturer in Canada, and I came across a like custom shirt maker. Um, on the other side of the country in Toronto and, uh, they had really good quality. So that was kind of our first manufacturer, uh, like proper one that we ordered several times. Um, so I sourced the fabric, um, through actually it was the manufacturer that had given me the contact and it's a fabric supplier I still work with and then I had the labels made and I sent them to the manufacturer and they made the collection and then they shipped it to us at the time I was working in the media as well as teaching so I had my own blog but I was also a fashion editor for a um sort of a daily email type of, you know, it was the Canadian version of daily candy at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I was well connected with boutiques and press and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So I managed to get the shirt into a couple of stores, I think maybe one or two ordered. And some, I just said here, just take four on sale or return and see how it goes. Um, and very different to my first business to start an online store nowadays is really not that complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, it helps that my husband's a web designer, but mm-hmm. you know, getting set up on Shopify was not complicated. So we, so I made a really basic web store and, uh, we started selling the product and with, because we got a few mentions in local press and I had a couple of stores, that's kind of how the business kickstarted.
0: started. Mm, okay. And did you do all of the technical specs and, um, I don't know if you did actual patterns or you just did uh, POM charts, but did you put together all the technical specs for production? I, I did. And I had someone helping me with that, but it was at the beginning, it
1: was pretty, it was pretty basic because we would always send the sample. Uh, to the manufacturer. uh So it was never like, Oh, you're working blind from a tech pack. And and even now, I mean, our tech packs are important, but I, we, we always have samples. So, um, but yes, I I think I put the tech pack together. I definitely have put tech packs together and, um, and I, but I don't make patterns.
0: Okay. Gotcha. So you had a sample and some POMs and then, um, You just sent that off, and they go from there. Yeah, I mean, okay.
1: I learned how to make patterns and everything in fashion school, but I'm not good enough at
0: doing it. That's a fine-tuned skill that takes years to exactly. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yes, yeah. Um, Okay, so then fast forward to 2014, you make this connection with the wholesale agency, and you said that's when things really took off. How did you connect with them? um a contact from London actually I had been
1: in touch with the principal of the agency for brands that I had freelanced with so she uh, knew who I was okay. and I and I guess that's probably how I got my email opened and I said listen I'm doing this and she probably normally would have been like no but because she knew me she said well it would ha- you know you'd need to do a little it knew, would need to be bigger it would need to be this and I said we can do this and so then I she agreed to let me send her a sample and, uh, she loved it. So that, that's, that was kind of the first that was getting the foot in the door.
0: Okay. And so what do you, what did she mean by it needs to be bigger? Like the, the brand needs to be bigger, the more product available. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at the time we were just,
1: I think at the time we had launched the nighty in a pan. So we had, a night shirt that was available in two lengths. These are our classic shapes. It's the short sleeve shirt and the long sleeve shirt, and they're still our best sellers today. Um, and then we had a nightie and a pants and she's like, you're going to need a bigger collection than that to be able to wholesale it. And you're going to need a larger selection of fabric. So uh. um, I bulked out the collection to make it look, you know, it, it has to be able to hang on a rail and yeah. buyers need to be able to buy something so that, you know, it's telling the story, on the rail. So we had to expand the collection to be able to, um, to be able to sell like that. And at that time too, I had changed manufacturers. So I was working with someone locally in Vancouver who was more, who wasn't just a shirt maker. They were also someone who could make nighties and pants and, you know, more like women's wear loungewear type pieces, not just a, a men's specialist shirt maker.
0: Right. Okay. And can yeah. I ask how how did you fund all of this from the beginning? And then up until, you know, you, you match with this wholesale agency. And I imagine, I mean, obviously you can do a lot of the work yourself when it comes to the design process, but then to buy additional fabric, to buy additional inventory, that all costs money along the way. Where was the money coming from? Um, it was
1: self-funded. And, and okay. when I think back on those <laughs> days, I don't know how I managed. I I, I must have, like, I didn't have any investors or anything. Like there was no, like, you know, fund of like check from my parents to help me get started. I think my, like I've, we, we, ever since, um, like, we were always living cheaply in Canada. Like, we uh, we had, well, we started in my grandmother's basement suite, but my husband and I, shortly after moving back from London, we, we bought a house in an area that wasn't that expensive, so we didn't have a big mortgage. And I was teaching two days a week, which was fairly well paid, and my husband had a full-time job, so we were able to, like, you know, put a little bit of money towards uh, the business. And yeah, okay. I guess I must have used overdraft and credit card as well. I mean, the company still owes me some shareholder loans from those <laughs> days. But yeah, it was, it was completely self-funded. And I mean, there was never any, yeah, there was never any, luckily there was never any moments where it was like, holy, we have like huge bills to pay and no money coming in. I always managed to kind of figure it out through my own personal like overdrafts and um, yeah. And then money slowly coming through from our wholesale accounts in our online store.
0: Okay. And how long, so you said you were, uh, I'm not sure how far into it you were working two days a week as a teacher, but how far into um, the sleep shirt did you continue at least doing some part-time work on the side? Um, like I think it's two
1: years ago that I gave up my part-time work. 2018. Okay. Yeah. Around that. I mean, I still actually am technically doing some, freelance work unrelated to fashion, uh, with my husband. But yeah, it it was for years that I had dependent, depended on other, um, other sources of income to be able to balance things out. And then it kind of got to the point where it was like, well, if I give this up, I'm going to have a little bit less money, but I'm going to have more time to put in the business. And so it was kind of worth it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it takes time to sort of recoup that initial investment and then all the money that you start earning just goes right back into buying more inventory um and production costs. So um I appreciate you being tra- transparent about that because I think from the outside it it can everybody's story can paint a different picture than what is actually going on behind the scenes. Um so it takes time. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so two thousand fourteen, you sign with the wholesale agency, and you start getting placed in a bunch of retail outlets, and those are actual wholesale orders, not um, consignment. Yeah. No. Okay. No.
1: Yeah, those are they're wholesale orders. Okay. So what happened is we launched with fall two thousand fourteen, and um, we were in Le Bon Marche in Paris and Barney's. And there That's was a huge. few. We some other, you got into Barney's.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah. yeah, but
1: this is this is the power of an excellent sales agent. Mm-hmm. Um, And, uh, and, and actually it was kind of exciting. It was the, the sales agent also had a press wing. And, uh, so we decided to hire some of their press team to do some press. Uh And they were like, Oh, good news. Um, the wall street journal wants to do a piece with you on you. And I was like, amazing. So I did this interview with the wall street journal. And I remember I was like, I was living in Sweden at the time and I was downtown and I did the interview. I was sitting on like a bench on the, Street. I didn't really – I mean, I understand press, but I just did not understand how important the Wall Street Journal was going to be <laughs> for us. And so we had a quarter page or – maybe even a third of a page article that came out a few weeks later and we almost sold out our entire web store and wow. Barney's and the line in New York also sold out on everything online. Wow! So that was really like, you know, that dream piece of press that you get yeah. where you're just like, wow. And we still have, because at the time I knew all the customers, like I was looking at the customers' names and fulfilling things on my own. And we still have a lot of those customers that came through us from Wall Street Journal and 2014.
0: Still today 2020 you're seeing orders from them. Yeah. Wow, that's so amazing. So that was a really that and 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 to this day
1: newspapers continue to be our best uh, type of press with the highest conversion. Um, wow. And sometimes people are like amazing. And I had no idea. And it's not—it's not only print. I mean, they all publish online, online and in print. But uh, give me a newspaper over a magazine or an influencer any day. That's what our customers read, and they—it converts always.
0: Who is your customer?
1: So we have two customers. Our our sort of main customer, I would say, is like. 45 to 70 year old, affluent female, professional, or maybe she doesn't work anymore, she's retired, and someone who is passionate about quality and wants to be, you know, chic at home. She's not going to walk around in leggings and an old t shirt. Uh-huh. Um, so she appreciates the brand for the quality, the fact that, you know, she can find her shape with us and come and buy it every season again. Uh, And these are customers that, you know, will, will buy a lot. So they'll buy regularly and they'll buy more than one at a time and, Um, So that's kind of our primary customer. And then our secondary customer is a slightly younger one, someone who um, might be interested in sustainable fashion, someone who's looking to buy more slow fashion for their wardrobe to buy higher quality pieces. They're kind of graduating from like fast fashion and starting to invest in pieces. And so that could be someone anywhere from late 20s up into, you know, mid 40s. But that's kind of like our younger customer.
0: Okay. But if you look at that primary customer, the 45 to 70-year-old affluent woman who, I i mean, I just got such a picture of her when you're like, she's not wearing leggings and a t-shirt at home. Um, she is reading the paper. That's yeah. where she is. Yeah. yeah. That's where she's hanging yeah, and out. She's,
1: yeah. And she's probably got house guests or maybe she's got adult children that are at home and she wants to be able to walk around in her pajamas yeah. and not feel exposed, you know? Yeah. like. You can wear them. It's We're conservative and a little bit modest. Modest or classic shirts. And and I remember the buyer from Neiman Marcus had said to us, "It's family friendly." Uh. And even though that word kind of gives me shudders, like family, <laughs> but uh, she's right. Like I mean, that's what people love is that you know you can have a house guest and they see you in your pajamas and you can say good morning and or you yeah. can you know have breakfast wearing your pajamas and it's it's not something that's revealing or too sexy or too uncomfortable yeah. or too see through.
0: Before you got that press in the Wall Street Journal and then slowly learned that, or slowly maybe proved that newspaper press is your best conversion, did you have the foresight to think, okay, this is my customer. Where is she hanging out? What is she reading? Aha, she is reading newspapers. We should try to get newspaper press. Or did that just happen because of that press? It sort of snowballed and you had the light bulb moment afterwards. Well, I think like
1: because I've been in the industry for quite a while, like back in my day, it was all about newspapers and magazines and and magazines, fashion magazines were more important than the newspaper. But I definitely, I think I had gotten already a mention maybe in the Vancouver Sun, which is like the main local newspaper in Vancouver, BC. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know. I don't think I'd really properly thought through what you know, who my customer was like, I love the shirt. I had friends who love the shirt. Mm -hmm. My mom loved the shirt. Her friends liked it. So Mm -hmm. I knew that there was definitely something that this was a cross generational product Mm -hmm. that was not just for like, you know, women my age at the time. Um, But I know, I don't know if I'd really thought about that. I think the wall street journal really made me go, okay, right. This is Mm -hmm. where our customer is. And, you know, it's been repeated with other newspapers where they continue to deliver in the same in a similar way. I mean nothing's beat that Wall Street Journal piece, but we, you know, every time we know we're getting a newspaper piece, we get excited.
0: Yeah. And I asked this specifically because I get a lot of people emailing and sending me messages on Instagram asking um, should they be sending their products out to influencers or they're sending them out to Im- they're sending pitches to influencers to try to send them product for free to get a post or whatever and they're not hearing back and they're not seeing success with that. And so I think it's important to take a step back and think is, is an influencer, is that influencer really the right person based on who your product's customer is? So important.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think to me, the influencer landscape is like the wild west. You mm-hmm. do not know what you're getting into at all. It, it's so difficult, and there are some excellent ones, and I have worked with some amazing ones, mm-hmm. and I've also worked with ones where I'm just like, I don't understand. I mean, there's all these different metrics, you know, how many followers, what their engagement mm-hmm. is, but I mean, even those things you don't know because someone might be getting a lot of engagement, but they might be like a really attractive woman who's <laughs> wearing revealing clothing, and many of her followers are men, or mm-hmm you know, they might not be in the wrong geographical location, or she might also be talking about, you know, cheaper brands and her customer doesn't have the money for you. So you really, it's, it's a real struggle when you're dealing with the influencer landscape to know what you're getting into. Mm. Whereas with newspapers and magazines, I mean, sometimes it's harder to get a response from the editors, but there's a different level of professionalism there. First of all, you don't have to bribe them with free things to Mm. get Mm -hmm. noticed. It helps sometimes, but newspapers, I think it's less less likely than um than with magazines. And people are professional there. Like, you know, if you approach them in a professional way, whether it's yourself or through a PR, it, it's a definitely a more professional process. And 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 typically you can get a better idea of what the returns are gonna be. Um whereas with influencers, it's so hard to gauge what's going to be successful and what isn't.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you've had your fair share of, of press experience across the board. Yeah, definitely. Have you tackled some of that on your own or have you always done that through a PR agency of some sort? I started with it on my own, but now I have PR people. I have someone who
1: represents us in the U S and another person who does Canada and a little bit of international, but we hardly do any international, even though Canada is a much smaller market it's important for us cause we're Canadian and ca- a lot of Canadian customers are very, um, uh, dedicated to buying locally, mm-hmm. uh, especially since we're made in Canada. So that's mm. an important market for us. And then the U S is our, is also really important. So okay. I don't do very
0: much of it on my own anymore. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So the, the wall street journal piece hit in 2014, um, and it sounds like that's when the, and, and you had the wholesale agency working with you and it sounds like the business really exploded then. So, so what sort of came next? So the business
1: was poised to grow for a while. Um, I mean, it was growing, but it was not eventually after, I I don't know, I think it was around two years. Um, maybe it was a bit longer than that maybe it was 3 years we ended our relationship with the wholesale agency and one of the reasons for that was that we knowing who our customer was and what our and and what they were buying on in in our and our web store we realized that our that we were really more focused on being loungewear and sleepwear, and our the agency we were working at was very fashion focused, mm. um, and so we were kind of in a situation where we were like, do we turn this into something more fashion? Do we continue what we're doing and really focus more on sort of intimates? And we've also pushed it as beach cover up and resort wear and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, we didn't have the resources to expand the collection by a great deal, so we ended up. Um, changing agency. Uh, They also, yeah, there was also the fees were going up in terms of how much it was costing to show in New York and Paris, and those were key markets for us. So Mm -hmm. we ended our relationship with them and started with someone else, but that was around the time where a decision was made that our wholesale business is important, but our best chance for growth is through our online store. So the decision was made you know, we are going to nurture our wholesale business and we are going to do what, everything we can to maintain it and to, you know, to push some growth. But the main focus was going to be on the online store.
0: Direct to consumer.
1: Yeah. So we're in a really, go ahead. We're in a really lucky position because, um, like most, like our key products are one size and the rest of them all are kind of oversized and fit loose. So Mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of returns. Like our returns Mm -hmm. rate is less than 5%. And industry average last time I checked probably a year ago was about 29% with apparel for online. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we had like, we knew there was potential to grow that business. Um, and also just looking at data, like, you know, repeat customer rates and stuff like that. And Customer lifetime value and stuff like that. So
0: right, and it's it it um, it, it's a little bit more laborious. You have more orders to pack and ship, but the profit margin is much higher too because you're selling retail. Exactly. So exactly. Okay, so then what did you do, like strategically? What sort of moves did you make to focus on growing the online store and the direct to consumer business?
1: Well, we got a three, like third-party logistics warehouse to start fulfilling our orders. Okay.
0: You had been um, packing them and shipping them yourself previously?
1: Y- yeah. Okay. And uh,
0: that, I mean, that's a complete nightmare. <laughs> um, <laughs> like your house is full of boxes <laughs> and sleep shirts
1: and return, well, shipping we did labels. We have a small studio at the oh, time, okay. but it was just like, you know, oh, you can't go away at Christmas because... <laughs> Yeah, there's going to be right. orders. So right. Yeah. So we we got the, we <laughs> got a, a a warehouse and um, yeah, and then I think there was just more of a focus on the online business, and that's kind of where I started to really try and learn a little bit more about it. And I'm still one of those people that listens to a lot of webinars and you know reads articles and stuff that you know f- to try and and push that. But but yeah, I mean, that's been a, quite a big focus and especially now in 2020 and, you know,
0: yeah. because
1: of COVID and stuff yeah. the, the the investment in the web store was definitely worth it.
0: So what did that look like? Do you, you know, cause I, I, we've talked to different guests on the show about strategies. You know, some people have done a lot of blogging and they sort of blog in areas that are just outside of, of their product, but that might catch the person on a google search who then is like oh they have a product i really like or are you doing um adwords or facebook ads or or what type of stuff are you implementing to actually get traffic Yeah. We've done a tiny bit of content marketing, but our main marketing is
1: through press. So traditional like media, I mean, sorry, magazines and newspapers, uh, Facebook ads. And we also run a little bit on Instagram, but it's primarily Facebook. Um, And then our newsletter, which is, you know, the highest converting, um, marketing tool that we have. So growing our mailing list and, and, and using that to promote the new collections. Yeah. Um, Those are kind of our three main things. And I mean, we focus on all of them. And then there's also the element of influencer uh, marketing, which we're also doing as well.
0: Okay. We'll get back to this episode in 20 seconds. But real quick, did you know that the SFD podcast is sponsored by you? We don't interrupt your listening experience with ads and instead rely on your support. There are three ways you can do that one, tell a friend about the podcast. Two, sign up for the email list at soheidi.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com slash email. Three, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for supporting the SFD podcast. Now back to the episode. So we've touched on the press stuff a little bit and you that's outsourced to an agency. Um, can you talk a little bit about the both the Facebook ads and the, the newsletter strategies? Because I think these are things that, um, I mean, I'll be totally transparent. I threw some money. Actually, I didn't just throw money. Um, I hired a Facebook ad consultant, and I threw a bit of money at her, and then I threw a bit of money at Facebook ads. And this is not to sell a product, um, but you know, similar sort of overarching strategies. And I literally felt like I was lighting money on fire. Um, <laughs> and I pulled away. I was like, I, I don't think this is for me, and uh, it's just not working. And I think a lot of people have had those types of experiences um, with Facebook and and. It can feel like, oh, I'll just put money into ads, but it's a lot, there's a lot more to it than that. And I'd love to touch on the newsletter stuff too, but we can start with the yeah, Facebook. Yeah. Well, so with the Facebook ads,
1: like, I don't know if this is something they do anymore, but in the early days I was able to get a couple of meetings with someone from Facebook to help me get started, ah. um, And so that allowed me to learn the ropes. And I think one of the key things with Facebook ads is definitely retargeting. So you already need to be established enough to have traffic to your website Mm -hmm. to be able to do the retargeting. But the retargeting ads are always going to bring a a higher uh, return on ad spend um, than, than sort of our prospecting. Um, and so I was running that they were doing okay. Like, I mean, I was running lots of retargeting campaigns. We would sometimes try and run, like when we started our plus size range, for example, trying to get into a new market. Sometimes we'd run ads and we would just be inundated with rude comments about how expensive our product is. Mm. So, you know, it doesn't always work, but I was, coming back, like I was achieving an okay ROAS, but return on ad spend. Um, but then my business partner suggested, um, to meet with someone he was working with another company that he was working with. And so she started helping us and she helped a little bit more. And I also learned a lot from her, but then about two years ago, yeah, it was probably about exactly two years ago. She recommended someone who was a little bit more, um, uh, who's more of an expert on Facebook ads and he's been running our ads for two years now. And, um, yeah, he's been great. He, I mean, he's, he's really good what he does I, this year. He was like, he sends me these video updates and he's like, Alex, this is really like, I've never seen anything like this. It's so good. So we've, we've been, we've been really lucky in terms of the retargeting. Obviously in 2020 we're in the right category right now because loungewear is an important category, but yeah, he's yes. been running the ads <laughs> since. And, when he first did kind of an audit of us and he went through all these different, like, the funnel and all these different techniques and stuff like that, I realized, like, this is really complicated if I want to do this well. Like, most yeah. people can probably figure out a couple of good retargeting campaigns. Um, but to go deeper than that, it's it's complicated. Um, and I guess we've been lucky that we ended up with someone who is really good at that.
0: And so the retargeting, just for people who aren't quite aware would be where someone visits your website, but doesn't do anything. Maybe they're just browsing around and then 20 minutes later or two days later, they're on Facebook and they get an ad about your product.
1: Yeah. So basically you install like a Facebook pixel on your website. And if that person is logged into Facebook on the same browser that they're logged into that they're using for your website, Facebook will notice that and they will retarget them with ads. Okay. And And we'll go up to like 90 days, I think. So it's not necessarily like you're just going to see an ad tomorrow. I think we go up to 90 days.
0: Okay. And that seems to be your best
1: conversion for Facebook specifically. Yeah. Yes, definitely. If they've already come to the website and they've had a look around. And I mean, it's not just like if they've visited, there's also um, like browse retargeting. So if they've looked at a product, they will then see that product in their advertising and on their (laughs) Facebook feed. So. yeah
0: yeah and then I swear they're like doing and I don't know about Facebook but well probably because they own Instagram but I swear there's like audio stuff happening now because we my husband and I were laying in bed and we have a Pendleton Pendleton blanket on our bed and he commented he goes oh I didn't realize this was a Pendleton blanket and then the next day he got an ad on Instagram for a Pendleton blanket and like he'd never looked up Pendleton blanket or anything and I'm like I swear they're not just watching our browsers but they're listening to us like I don't know. You know what? They deny that, but I have also had experiences like that. Right? So (laughs) I don't
1: know what's going on there.
0: (laughs) It's scary. All the big brother internet stuff. Um, Yeah. yeah, And so that's where, you know, the, the same product you looked at three days ago, then pops up on your Instagram feed and you're like, Oh my gosh, I have to have it. I just started thinking about it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So it sounds like, you know, for that to have really been effective, Like you said, you have the established base of traffic already coming to your site. It's not like, I'm going to put up my website tomorrow on Shopify, and I'm going to throw Facebook ads out there, and then it's going to magically turn into all this traffic and customers.
1: Yeah. It's a much harder to prospect and get people to visit your, like for that, for those ad dollars to convert when you're, when they are not already familiar with your brand. Yeah. And I definitely think you're better. You, that's where you have to have a multifaceted strategy of like getting the magazine or the newspaper to talk about you're the influencer. Yeah. Then you visit the website, then you get the Facebook ad and then maybe you convert 30 days later or, you know, yeah. or you go back on the way and then maybe you don't convert till six months later. But yeah. that whole, it's like this, you know, process of, yeah, it's a, it's a long journey, I think.
0: Yeah. So I think based on your experience and your story, starting out with getting the press coverage and getting some people to the website initially and getting some orders and then potentially building up towards the Facebook ads. And I mean, if it were me, I would definitely hire a consultant. I think it's so easy to burn those dollars doing the ads wrong then versus the cost to hire someone to manage it for you and do it really dialed in. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I think so. And I mean, if you're really, really small and you don't have the budget, then I would really look at a lot of sort of um, courses, free content online, using even Facebook's resources to really try and figure out what you're doing before you start spending money.
0: Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the newsletter? Because uh, I I mean, I have a, a substantial email list and I, I 150% understand the value of this. And I think most people do nowadays. But I think um, as a fashion brand... I know a lot of things people get stuck with is they're like, well, what am I supposed to send out as far as content? You know, you can only keep emailing them so much like, oh, hey, we have this new product or, hey, this product's on sale. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of your strategies to, first of all, get people signed up for the email list? And then second of all, how do you actually engage with them?
1: Uh, so first of all, we do the, like, get 15% off your first order if you sign up for the mailing list. And that's how we get most of our people. And then occasionally we'll do giveaways or kinds of things. But, I mean, they don't always result in very good um, good people being added to the list. Good meaning, like, people that are going to convert. I mean, the best mm-hmm. way is really to have people sign up on your website. And we do that with an incentive. Um, I mean, I think the first thing to mention with the mailing list is that it's like one of your only channels that you hundred percent own. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, Instagram, they could change your algorithm tomorrow and you're lost or you could, I don't know, something could happen and your account gets shut down or something and you've lost those people. Whereas your mailing list, your list of email addresses that you own no matter what. So it's so important just for security that this is like an important channel. Um, And then we used to be with a platform that we're now with a, a newsletter platform that's like specific to e-commerce. So it's mm. a better design that's integrated with Shopify, um, that allows us to easily set up all of our, our flows. So I think th- there's two parts to the, like the newsletter strategy. There's sending out the newsletters, which I'll talk about in a moment. And then there's all the automations and there's tons of automation. Mm-hmm. So first of all, when you sign up, you get your discount code and then you get a welcome series and the welcome series is only triggered. Like if you get your discount code and place in order right now, right away, you're not going to get the welcome series, but the welcome series, which I think ours is two or three emails will go over 10 days and will not, will only be sent to people who haven't placed an order. So Mm -hmm. then you can sort of introduce them to your new collection or your classic collection. Then we have browse abandonment and cart abandonment. So if you're browsing something, then the, and you're like on the list already, you've signed up, then they will email you and say, you left this in your cart or mm-hmm. if you have, uh, you know, fi- the ca- abandoned cart emails. And we also have a, like, we have a review request, I think 30 days after a customer purchased something. And then at that stage, you know, you're asking them to write a review and if they love the product, maybe they're going to go back on and buy again. Um, we have a retargeting, um, series, which I think is 180 days after they've placed in, order if they haven't come back. Um, And we have different welcome series depending on how you sign up. So if we do a giveaway, we will have a different welcome series uh, depending on how you decided to sign up. And, and, And I don't know if this is common across other brands. My feeling is that it's not because when I listen to webinars, it doesn't sound like a lot of people do this. But when I sign on a new subscriber who is not, you know, who has not come on the website and shown intent to buy, if they've signed up through a giveaway or something, I'm not going to email them as much. So maybe I'll hold off and wait until we're doing a really big sale before I email them the first time, because I don't want to fill their inbox with new collection stories and then they get bored and uh, unsubscribe. So I'll have like a different uh, strategy for people who we haven't acquired, you know, with as much intent, say, as the as the person who came on our website and signed up and wanted the newsletter code to buy. Um and I mean our collection now is 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 big enough that we usually have something to say every 10 days so we'll send sale emails and we'll send new product emails. Um and our open rates are close to are over 20%. And, you know, and, and I mean, it's, it's definitely our, our emails are, are definitely our best marketing tool that we have.
0: Okay. And so is that really the bulk of what you're sending is announcing new products or maybe new colors, um, and then sales specifically those two yeah. items. Okay.
1: Yeah. Like we very rarely do content based ones. I think yeah. maybe four times a year, like, um, we did, we did some, sort of more messaging from me when it was COVID and during um, sort of the, like when Black Lives Matter became, you know, quite big in the, in, on social media and we, want, we made a statement. So we sent emails like that and occasionally we'll do something like, have you seen our latest press? But most of the time, I think our customers, they want to know when new products in store and they, uh. so that they can click and buy it. So we let them know about new product and we let them know about sale.
0: Okay. Interesting. So it's almost like sending them the other content that I think for some brands works really well it's sort of like sending value-based content um, as opposed to any like product or sales-based content can work really well. It sounds like your customer is like, I don't really care about that extra content. I just want to know about the product.
1: Yes. I mean, I think maybe we would be able to perhaps come up with content that they might be interested in, but I guess that's the question of like having the resources to create that content and yeah. <laughs> we just haven't been able to focus it. Like we do have a diary kind of blog on our website, but it's mostly just content marketing for SEO. It's mm-hmm. not, I mean, there's some good content on there, but it's not, we are not kind of like, I mean, Goop's probably not a good example because they were already always, they were content before they were selling product, but we're not the type of place that people go for. Editing advice on ethical fashion or getting a good night's sleep. People, yeah, they expect the newsletter to have new stuff that they can buy and they click through and they buy it. Okay. Gotcha.
0: Um, and do you mind sharing what email platform you're using for other people out there using Shopify who might want to look into that?
1: Yeah. It's Klaviyo.
0: Klaviyo. Okay. We'll link to yeah, that in the show with notes. With a K. Okay. Yeah. They're not perfect, but they're way better of than <laughs> oh, I used to be on Mailchimp. I've, I'm on my third provider since Mailchimp, and yeah, yeah, Mailchimp is great when you're first starting. Um, it can be, but I think there's a lot better providers out there nowadays. I mean, God, that was like eight years ago. I was on Mailchimp, but yeah, um, okay. And then you mentioned. Um, You've, a couple times you've mentioned these webinars that you keep watching. What are some of the resources out there that you that you're consuming to help strategize with your business? Are there any go to blogs, podcasts, webinars that other people could maybe tune into? Um, I mean gosh, I I um, well
1: Clavio does a lot of webinars. Okay. So I've been using a lot of theirs and I don't think you have to be signed up to get the notifications about those. Uh, we also used a funding platform called ClearBank. We're no longer using them, but, uh, they are one of those new funding platforms that will, um, give you money and then take a percentage of your web sales until it's paid back with, and then they take a fee as well. And they had some, they've had some good content and, um, there was a couple of there was a blogger I was, like, a, a podcaster I was listening to, but she's mostly focused on digital products now, so I don't really listen to her as much. Okay. I don't know. I also get, like, things from the Canadian government because we're Canadian and they offer webinars for, you know, Canadian brands, so I'll listen to that. But, I mean, I, I'm one of those people that if I sign up for a webinar, I almost never attend them live because that mm-hmm. I will almost always listen to the recording. And what I find is that I'll usually walk away with one thing. I'm like, oh, let's do that. and yeah. You know, so... So, yeah.
0: I love that. Um, thanks for sharing. And, yeah, we'll try to link to some of those in the show notes. Um, so you had this foresight to focus on direct-to-consumer. I, maybe, you know, no, arguably not really a foresight for COVID. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who could foresee COVID? No. Um, <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> but uh, you had this foresight. And are you, you're still doing wholesale today, though. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, would you mind sharing like where's your split? Are you guys 80% online, 20% wholesale or if you don't want to share, that's fine too. Uh,
1: no, I think that sounds about right. Okay. I think that sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we have some amazing wholesale accounts and, uh, and and particularly in Europe too, where we don't like, people don't like to order. If you live in Europe and you order from North America, you get hit with a huge bill of like taxes and import fees. yeah, Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we've got some great wholesalers. I mean, all of our wholesale, all of our wholesale accounts are great, but uh, some of our bigger ones are in Europe. And yeah, I mean, they are. It's definitely still a key part of our business. It's just not as big a chunk as it used to be when when we started
0: out. Okay. So, um, so I think you said it was about 2017 ish. You decided to really focus on the direct to consumer, um, and you obviously continued to do press, the Facebook ads and a little bit of Instagram and the, um, the newsletter stuff, which obviously you said converts very well. Um, what else has changed since then? Well, I guess I should mention in 2017,
1: we were named one of Oprah's favorite things. Um, yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So that was, (laughs) that was really interesting. Um, yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, so, I mean, I had a press person in the U.S. at the time who had a great relationship, and I met with the editors there, and we gifted them nightshirts, and they loved them, and so they, you know, got it in front of Oprah, and we got chosen. Um, Listen, it was an amazing opportunity for the brand. Like, I think you're probably going to see a little benefit a little bit more from it when you're a slightly lower-priced product because – we're expensive and Oprah, like, you know, they definitely cover products in our price range, but it's not like their key, you know, I don't, I think their key demographic doesn't spend this much on sleepwear, but what's um, your price point for, uh, so like most of our products uh, are are between like $150 to like 275. That's probably 90% of our products. Um, oh, except for our t-shirt range, which is all under a hundred. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that, the business really kind of, I mean, it's not one of these like blew up, like, oh my gosh, it was crazy. It wasn't the same as the wall street journal. Cause uh-huh. we knew this was coming since August uh-huh. and like we've, the, you know, we have to sign an NDA to tell people you are not gonna <laughs> tell anyone and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But, um,
0: but that was, that was also a really big
1: bump for the business, which was, was really good to help grow the web store.
0: Okay. Did you see a big yeah. bump in, traffic and then obviously not all the traffic's gonna convert, but then also in sales.
1: Yes, we did. And I think it's not even like there's one part you're gonna get the bump from Oprah, but there's also the knock on effect of like, you know, being a Canadian brand, all like we had tons of Canadian media talk about how a Canadian company made it onto one of Oprah's favorite things.
0: Ah right. So there right. was all
1: this like knock on effect um that we got from that. So oh. so yeah, so that so that definitely benefited the company as well.
0: And then you just, I mean, that's just huge social proof and bragging rights that you put right on the front of your website. So I think exactly. when people are looking at your product or your brand and they see that, they think, oh, there's validation towards this. It's a good product because Oprah endorsed it, even if that was three, five, ten 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So then that had, um, got you a bunch of other press at some small outlets, but I imagine, or maybe not even so small, but I imagine that built up some momentum as well. Um, So that's huge, big pushes to get people online. Um, So then we fall into like 2018, and that's when you said you were able to quit doing any work on the side.
1: Yeah, I mean, the business was getting to the point where I was able to pay myself a a small a reasonable small on the small side salary. Yeah. yeah. Um and yeah, so I was able to focus a lot more, which was good. Yeah. But I think we did kind of, you know, it hasn't been like it after Oprah there was a a bump and we maintained a good portion of what the Oprah like uh the Oprah business, let's call it. Um, but it 2018, 2019 were pretty steady. And it was, we're finding it a little bit more difficult to grow the business, um, you know, to really grow it. And I think what happened in 2020 for us has been, you know, well, when COVID started, uh, I was like panicking, obviously, like everyone. But then a couple of months in, started to realize that maybe being in a pajama business (laughs) was actually a pretty good place to be. And I think... I think what we're seeing now is that a lot of our customers – so a lot of our customers, like the older customers, are not that accustomed to shopping online. They're not like 20-year-olds who have been, you know, buying online or like people in their 20s that are really familiar with it. But what's happened with COVID is that a lot of customers who in the past preferred to go into stores are now going, well, I don't have any choice. I have to buy online. Uh-huh. And what's nice with our brand is that, you, you know, because we have so few fit problems because our pro- products are, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of fit issues – People will buy from us and they'll go, Oh, that was that was easy, you know. Yeah. Um, which typically it is with the online shopping process, unless you're, you know, it's not hard to create a fairly seamless experience with Shopify and having a good warehouse fulfilling and everything. Yeah. Um, and so now we're seeing that people like who have tried us out for the first time, say in early summer or very late spring, are going, Okay, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm going to come back. And so we've seen like a, definitely a little lift with the business.
0: Uh, In general, like your business has grown since COVID. Yes. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. Not many people can say that.
1: Well, yeah. You and Zoom. (laughs) Yeah, we are in a lucky position. I mean, it wasn't like an immediate and it hasn't been some explosive, like insane growth, but Uh I mean, it's like we're in the right category where we, you know, yeah. make loungewear and and also like our shirts and stuff are quite chic. So it's definitely work from home clothing. Yeah, um, and then. And then we were lucky that we didn't have any fulfillment issues during the pandemic because our 3PL stayed open and our warehouse or our factory also stayed open. Like if you want to, when we go for quality control, they like check temperatures and, you know, it's pretty strict in the, in the factory. So we've managed to also be almost be uninterrupted. We've been so lucky. And I've also got an amazing team that have been, you know, super flexible and all that. So that has definitely helped.
0: Yeah. You mentioned earlier a business partner. I think you said he. Who is he?
1: Um, he is a partner that joined in 2015. They started out as a consultant, um, and he's a business person who I needed someone. Uh, you know, I can't do everything, so I got an introduction from someone who had helped with my lingerie business. Uh, like, a, he's, you know, his, his background is um, in, finance and business and buying and selling companies. And he understands the business side of things. And we had him help us, like I had him help with a business plan and with growth strategy. And then we got along well. So he is now a minority partner and he's, he's my business person.
0: Yeah. And
1: it's, yeah, I mean, he's great for strategy. It's good to have bounce ideas off of. And I think one thing that's important. And it's sad to have to say this. It's really good to have a man in the business because sometimes mm-hmm. you need a man to make a phone call when you know as a woman that you're not going to be taken seriously. Uh,
0: yeah. Sad truth. <sighs> there's but been there's truth. many yeah.
1: situations like that. So uh. sometimes I'm just like, John,
0: can you please make this call for me?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you, I mean, just from interviewing you over the past hour, you sound like a very strong woman. Yeah. I mean, I'm competent, but sometimes like, you know, sometimes there are situations that
1: you know that, you know, yeah. you're dealing with mansplaining or you just need <laughs> a guy to get on the phone and, yeah. uh, you know, to send the, or to send the firm email. Yeah. Um, so
0: yeah. Um, and then what does your role in the business look like right now? Are you still exclusively designer or do you have other designers that help and what else do you work on? Um, I have design and production
1: team that, I mean, the design is really a collaborative effort, but I have two people that help with production that are also always involved in the design process. Um, And and like we all kind of review the collection plans together and take part in the fittings. Um, But yeah, I mean, I guess I'm like kind of operations. I'm, I'm slowly able to give away a little bit more of the graphic design work and a little, <laughs> I'm not doing as much copy anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm, um, but sometimes when it's chaotic, I have to take charge of a bunch of things. Um, so yeah, I mean, the one thing I definitely really do nothing is, is, is anything that's physical, like in terms of going to the factory and stuff like that. Cause I'm not anywhere near it, but, um, but yeah so I have one person who's more on marketing and sales and then two people who are the part-time production and helping with design. Um, and then I've got my PR people who are, and a few other contractors. Okay. But I'm still overseeing everything.
0: Okay. And you mentioned that you're nowhere near the factory. You haven't mentioned where you physically are. I don't know if you don't want to share that for whatever reason. Um, Oh no, it's fine. So I mean, because the, the sleep shirt is Vancouver based, that's where our products are made. That's where our
1: warehouse is that we're a Canadian company, but I actually live in Sweden. So, um, yeah, so my husband's Swedish. And so I'm here. So I used to run the business by traveling a lot and being over here and working from home the rest of the time. Obviously travel hasn't been an option (laughs) recently. And again, that's one of the, I'm so lucky to have such a great team because we've, we've really, we've managed without me going over there and it's, you know, we have to do video fittings now, which is doable. And when you have a good team on the ground, then you, you know, you can, you can still, you can do those things and it, you know, it works. So, okay.
0: When did you move to Sweden?
1: Um, February will be seven years. So 2014, a while. Yeah.
0: Okay. So shortly after you started the company, but you decided to keep it in Vancouver. Why is that?
1: Uh, Because we've always been a Canadian company. Okay. It's like, I mean, that's what we are. We're a Canadian company. We're, our business is primarily in North America. Uh, Moving to Europe would completely change, I think. I mean, we would have to start over in terms of production. Yeah. Manufacturing and everything. And then having the team here. And it just didn't really make sense. Like, we are very much a Canadian brand. So it it just, it didn't seem like, yeah, it was, it seemed like the right, I never considered moving it over here. I okay. mean, I, at one stage, I did look into it, but it just didn't make
0: sense. Okay. But I love that, like, you as the owner and the founder and, like, the heart of the business are able to live across the con- across the world, not across the country, across the world, and um, and still run run everything in Canada. Like you said, you've got the team in place, and you used to travel a lot, but now, even not being able to go over there, you still run it, and things go fairly smoothly. I mean, I'm sure there's hiccups like there are with any business, but it's working. Yeah, it is. And I mean, yeah, I guess we're so much
1: better set up everyone now with tools to yeah. be able to do things online, like Zoom and yeah. Skype and like Dropbox where everything is synced and like, you know, everyone's seeing the same things at the same time. And I just think with all these tools, it's not difficult to have a business where you're on the other side of the world.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Um, Well, this has been so fun to chat with you, Uh, Alex. Did I call you Alex? I heard you refer to yourself as Alex in the interview. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Alex, okay. Um, It's been really fun to hear your story and all that you guys have been through and what you've managed to build. This is so phenomenal. Um, I'd love to end the interview with asking you the question I ask everyone at the end, and that is, what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would?
1: I listened to a couple of your interviews, so I knew this one was coming and I think I wanted to, I wanted to bring up something a little bit more serious, but I, and I think like, I think the fashion industry when I started it and I I do think it has changed, but really it is so filled with people who are extremely privileged. Mm. And I think it's, it's difficult to break into the industry without having that, you know, that privilege behind you, like whether it's money to be able to go to expensive schools and be an intern for two years before you can get, get a job, Mm -hmm. whether it's having connections because your dad knows this person or your mom knows this person. Um, you know, even like I come from like a middle-class family and, you know, I, I, went to a good school and grew up in Vancouver in a nice neighborhood, but I, I still can't believe at how many situations where someone is going to get an opportunity that I maybe didn't get because they are connected through, you know, usually family or those kinds of things. And I think if you're starting out without any of that, it's definitely a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that it has changed a little bit since I started when I started, it was, you know, all free internships and, you know, having like, and having to be in that money world, you know, and I feel like now with social media and with platforms like Shopify, it's a little, you don't have to know the buyer at Barney's to be able to get an appointment with them, but it's still difficult. So I think it's important to like, I mean, Yeah. Be aware of that. It's, it's not, it's not an easy industry to break into. A lot of people know each other and I still rely on so many connections I made from having gone to good schools and having had those opportunities. Yeah. uh, Because, you know, the people that you went to school with are now in great jobs in different cities. And, you know, when you need someone to help you with something, you call them. And so...
0: So, I appreciate, yeah. yeah, I appreciate you talking about and acknowledging that. I don't think anyone's ever brought that. Uh, obviously, you didn't listen to all hundred and twenty <laughs> episodes, but no, I um, didn't. but I have because, <laughs> and no one's ever said anything quite to that, um, that tone. So I appreciate you acknowledging that and being really forthright about you know what the industry is and how some of those barriers and challenges to breaking into it if you don't have certain relationships or financial means, and and those are true hardships that people do face. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, That's my pleasure. yeah. So where can everybody find you and the sleep shirt online and connect with you?
1: Uh, the sleep shirt.com. Um, and our, which will take you also to our web store, which is into the bedroom.com and, uh, on Instagram or the sleep shirt. Amazing.
0: Is it you behind the Instagram? Can I ask that?
1: Yes, it is most of the time. Okay. I'm always so curious. Sometimes I have help.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always so curious with brands, and I think that it can be really easy for people to just assume, oh, it's some assistant or some PR person or whatever behind the scenes. Um, But I I always think it's really cool when it's the actual founder doing some of that stuff. Yeah, no,
1: most of of it's me. I do have help sometimes, but I mean, it's just such an important channel, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I like to be in charge of that. Yeah. I know sometimes we have to keep certain things in our control, right? Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Alex. It's been wonderful. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. And a big thank you to my husband, Mark who does all of the tech and editing behind the scenes, as well as my right-hand gal, Tara, who helps so much with the scheduling and the coordinating of the interviews and making sure they get published and into your earbuds. As always, thank you to you for listening. I appreciate each and one of you, each and every one of you. If you guys haven't yet left an Apple uh, pot a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, they do really help the show out so much and everyone is really appreciated. So go ahead and take a few seconds to do that now. Thank you so much in advance. And second to that, if you don't follow me on Instagram, pop on over and say hi. I'm hanging out there at SoHeidi, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I, and I would love to connect with you over there. As always, you can scroll down to check out the show notes and references to links to anything we mentioned in this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you in the next successful fashion designer podcast episode.